conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Well, last week in his budget speech, Finance Minister Inokodongwana allocated 848 billion for the health sector, uh, with 1 billion rand going to the National Health Insurance Fund. Earlier in the week, Western Cape Premier, the Western Cape Premier described the impact that budget ca- cuts are having in the operation of hospitals in his province as catastrophic. Doctors at Khrutiskir are set to work under pressure with many vacancies not being filled. This past weekend, the ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa gave a brief description on the state of health in the country and how he believes the NHI will help to fix the country's health problems. We will continue to ensure that South Africans live long and they have healthy lives and that all people regardless of their income, receive quality health care. We will continue to overhaul our health system by continuing to invest in the building and maintenance of our hospitals, of our clinics, and our other health facilities, as well as providing relevant training for healthcare professionals, we will develop a single electronic health record that will enable a seamless experience for all users of public and private healthcare. We will, as I said, implement the National Health Insurance and yes, the NHI will be implemented in phases as it is an important project in the lives of our people. All right, of course, then let's get into this conversation to look at how budget is affecting the ability of health facilities to provide services that uh, people so desperately need. Let me invite onto the show Professor Alex van der Heve, who is an adjunct professor at the Witt School of Governance. Professor van der Heve, good morning. Good morning. Louis Boschoff is a campaign officer for health at AfriForum. Louis, good morning. Uh, good morning to you. Matthew Parks is Cosatu's acting spokesperson. Matthew, good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning to the colleagues. And Batolisile Mali is provincial secretary for the uh, National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union, which is Nahau in the Western Cape. Batolisile, good morning. Good morning to you, Katie, and your listeners at home. Professor van der Heeve, I'm going to kick it off with you. When we look at the medium-term expenditure framework, um, and this is, of course, over a number of years, and we look at a figure like four, like 848 billion rand, which is the allocation for health, it seems like there is a whole lot of money that is going to go towards the health department. But really, when we begin to unpack how that money is going to spend, when it's going to be spent, and when these allocations are going to be made, of course, the picture changes quite significantly. 
Well, there's a considerable amount of assets in the public sector and uh, and a very large number of employees. Uh, and uh, so the system is very, very large. And uh, the allocations that are given uh, can uh, might look very large, but the question really is whether they are uh, showing an improvement year on year on the system that we have. Um, all the evidence suggests that that's not the case, that we're actually effectively cutting the system in real terms, and uh, the system is going to be under a lot of pressure. Uh, but the system is also under pressure due to uh, systemic corruption in pr pretty much most of the provinces. And, uh, and this is also revealed through massive irregular expenditure and unauthorized expenditure uh, that occurs in in most of these provinces, which has a direct impact on equipment, on facilities maintenance, um, and they've also got significant accruals. It means that the uh, they're a bad debt. Basically, they're not paying the bills, and this means that you end up with stockouts, etc. So there's massive mismanagement in the provincial health service as well. But uh, so these systems are under stress due to both supply side constraints, the, the ability to actually fund the system at its current levels, the ability to improve on it, and the ability to actually maintain it, uh, given the fact that in many cases, the provincial administrations are, uh, are, are subpar. They're actually very weak, and uh, in many cases, incapable of properly managing the health service. Louis, is it fair for us to say that we have seen declining spending when it comes to healthcare um, in the country over the last couple of years and that is likely to be sustained going into the rest of 2024-2025 financial year? Uh, well, it depends on exactly what spending you're referring to. Uh, the, the short answer is no, the government, government hasn't been allocating less money towards healthcare as a whole, uh, but uh, the real spending, as in uh, what money has actually reached healthcare service provision on ground level, that might have been declining, uh, depending on uh, the amount of corruption uh, and uh, depending on uh, the amount of new doctors who's actually been employed. Uh, so yes, the, the short answer is no, not less spending if you define it in terms of budget allocation by government, but perhaps less spending if you are looking at how much money has actually reached uh, ground level healthcare service provision. Uh, Prof, can I get your view on that too? Th this idea of, of government spending less that, um, you know, it, it, and we hear it a lot in the context of what some describe as an austerity budget by government and then departments being told to freeze certain posts uh, because there simply is no budget to 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 um, to, to meet or to, to facilitate those 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 posts being filled. Yeah, so that, let's begin with the problem in the budgeting process. There's one thing, which is the actual allocation of the funds, and there is the other is the cost structure of the system. If you've got um, salaries and wages that are increasing uh, faster than the budget allocations can keep pace, then you're going to have a problem. Even with an increasing budget, you're going to be facing what appears to be austerity. You're going to be having to cut posts. The health budget, 65% of the health budget is going to be um, salaries and wages. And that uh, means that if you're having a cost impulse on that side, 
um, that's the part you have to cut down the line in order to prevent the rest of the expenditure being crowded out, which you need. You're on consumables, you need it on um, on equipment, you need it on maintenance. And basically, when the ratios go out of kilter, then your health system suffers in other ways. What's happening at the moment is that we had a very big uh, salary increase that was passed through on government, and national government failed to, to fully finance the uh, the budget increase, the, the the salary and wage increases that happened during the 2023-2024 financial year. This has happened on many occasions, in fact. And this imbalance causes a shock in what are in many cases quite poorly managed departments. And then they basically uh, are, uh, are taking some sort of evasive action, which usually results in freezing of posts, freezing of maintenance expenditure, non-payment of, uh, of bills, et cetera. So the problem is the shocks. And then on the long term, the question is whether or not the, the system is properly managed in keeping pace. In other words, the allocations keep pace with what with a growing and deepening capability of the health system in accordance with some kind of strategic plan. Now that just hasn't happened. So in in uh, so what we what we're seeing now is the outcome of a short-term constraint. But we've also got the problem that government finance is under huge pressure because basically government has basically shocked the economy into a form of recession. Uh, the failure of uh, of Eskom, of Transnet, of our logistic systems has basically taken economic growth uh, into negative levels. And what that has done is reduced government's revenues because it depends on economic growth in order to be able to finance the budget. So now we're sitting with many, many uh, complications. It's getting very complicated to manage the consequences of all of this. Corruption in the state, corruption that results in economic growth going into decline, government finances going into decline, and then this basically starting to hit uh, our public services and delivery when they're also quite poorly managed and they can't really take very severe shocks. So it's it's becoming very complex. But when we listen to what the Western Cape Premier, Alan Windy, had to say in his state of the province address last week, of course, he, he didn't mince his words when he described the, you know, the kind of challenges that they're facing as a province as a result of what he described as budget cuts, particularly within the health sector. So as Nahau in the Western Cape, do you feel that there have been budget cuts to health spending? No, Katie, look, uh, from, from where we're seated, we do think that... Um, there is some uh, truthfulness uh, in terms of uh, the austerity measures being uh, applied uh, by national treasure. But uh, we equally think that uh, as a union, we have uh, all the time have raised quite a number of issues about why we believe that uh, the, the decision to uh, go on a route of austerity a, a proposed austerity measures by MT was not well thought of in consideration of the issue of vacancy rate and uh, civil servants being overworked and civil servants being underpaid. But on the other side, we do think that um, the the premier uh, doesn't want to take uh, some uh, blame into the crisis that we are faced with in Western Cape. For instance, not everything has to do with austerity per se in Western Cape. 
There are some uh, challenges that uh, relate to issues of poor planning on their side, excluded allocation of resources to substructure. For instance, Western Cape can still justify that uh, it took a decision in 2014 to uh, demolish what is called Joste Hospital at that time. And then it planned then to um, build a new hospital, but until today, the 24 million which was allocated by National Treasury has not been uh, utilized. Maybe it's because um, the area in which uh, it was to be built on is not really uh, where the DA is benefiting in terms of uh, voters. But the second thing is that, uh, yes, there is truth as well that uh, when there were these proposed uh, cuts, when the uh, National Treasurer had uh, decided that uh, on a basis of what it has been signed in the PSCPC in terms of salary increase, which uh, Prof is saying was actually a high increase, which is where we disagree, because there was no really high increase here, because the only difference from what workers used to get on or what would have been budgeted for in the financial 2022 and 2023 was actually a difference of 3.2. So if one then argues that that uh, is actually a huge salary increase, um, we don't know what is the meaning of it. But as a result of that, you have the Western Cape uh, trying to intervene and manage the fact that the 3.2% was not actually budgeted for by National Treasury. And as it does that, it allocates too much resources on the areas uh, where their supporters are. For instance, in the northern uh, substructure and the southern uh, substructure, they remain well-funded. But if you go to areas like your Kailicha or eastern substructure, those uh, institutions, they remain uh, under-funded. Um, uh, as a result, the Kailicha area had for it to sustain the 3.2 increase had to borrow money from uh, the Mitchell's plane substructure, which tells you that uh, there is actually the question of poor planning uh, in dealing with this crisis of austerity measures. So we do believe that uh, uh, DA partly is correct at uh, the premier, but equally we, we do believe that uh, the premier is crying in a wrong funeral because it has been them who have been arguing publicly that the crisis in South Africa, for you to address the issues of money, you need to reduce um, uh, the public sector uh, wage bill by cutting half the people who are employed there. And as a result, whilst you are having uh, two long, long queues, you have a ratio of nurses vis-a-vis patient being high, and the government, because of its failure to budget for 3.2, is giving you what we have wanted to see by cutting half um, the public servants. We are now uh, getting on top of the mountain because there are elections coming and wanting to shoulder blame and not taking it to the fact that it's actually what we have wanted in the first instance. So partly we agree, but partly we believe that um, uh, also the provincial government should shoulder some blame in this regard. Thank you. All right. Okay. Um, thanks for that, Batolisile. Uh, in a moment, we'll also hear from Kasatu's Matthew Parks. When we continue the conversation, it's aging towards 10.30. It's time for your latest. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. 
We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're looking at the health department and not that the health department, sorry, but rather the state of uh, health care. We're asking the question around whether or not what are perceived cuts to health spending are having an impact on service delivery. Professor Alex van der Heve is an adjunct professor at Witt School of Business. Louis Boschoff, campaign officer for health at AfriForum. Matthew Parks is Kosato's acting spokesperson. And Bakolisi Lemali is with Nehau. Matthew, let me give you a chance to come in here as Kosato. Do you perceive the changes as being health cuts? Or as being spending cuts, rather? Um, good morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. Look, so yes, you know, they are. If you look at the allocations in the budget table to Parliament last week, um, the allocations for health uh, for the next year, for the next three years, um, are below inflation. So once you take inflation into account, then in real terms, yes, it's a mathematical fact. Um, it is a cut. And of course, at the same time, often medical inflation tends to be higher than general inflation. You must also take into account that the population grows. So, you know, there's multiple pressures on one side, I'm from different sides, but the net result is that we're putting the public health care under even greater pressure. But I think also we shouldn't forget that the national health insurance is not only about public health care, which is overstretched, it's extremely overburdened under severe pressure and caters for, you know, 84% of society roughly, but also about the private medical industry as well, which has a similar budget, but caters for about 16% of society, um, but also is having huge challenges too. So I think the idea is how do you combine resources to appreciate the fiscal space of government is always going to be under severe pressure given our many, many social economic challenges. Um, but, yeah, but it's about how do you pull resources together in a much smarter way, which can really fundamentally shift us from being a society where many people die of easily identifiable, preventable, manageable, or curable diseases. Um, for example, Cape Town should not be a tuberculosis capital of the world. Um, given the results we have at space, given the amount of technology, but it's about how do we pull things together in a much smarter way. When you think about the impact that this is having on service delivery within the health sector, Matthew, where would you say the biggest impact is being felt right now? I mean, the biggest impact right now is, is felt in our public hospitals, our day hospitals, where patients whether it's in Cape Town, at a Haderfeld, whether it's in Soweto or Krasani Baragwanath, literally have to get to the hospital by four in the morning, hoping to be seen by the afternoon. Um, and it's not because the nurses, the doctors don't want to assist, they do. But the, the, the number of vacancies there is so huge. The amount of demand is so great because most of the Africans simply can never afford medical aid given how extremely expensive it is. So that's the number one issue. Then, of course, if you have one nurse performing the job of what should have been two or three nurses, or if you have a doctor working a 48-hour shift, um, then, of course, the staff are going to be burned out. And then what you find happens is that medical staff, whether it's paramedics or nurses, doctors and so forth, are specialized professionals. Their skills are highly sought after, not only in the private sector here in South Africa, but even overseas. So it's very easy for the private sector or countries overseas to say, well, will offer you a far better salary, far less strenuous conditions. And this is why you're seeing a real brain drain from the, from the public health care institution. But not just that, you're seeing an increase significantly. You now find a situation where doctors who go through a, a universities, which are public universities, are heavily subsidized by taxpayers. Um, they do the community service. And literally, 
the Saturday morning they're done with community service, they're on a flight to London or Dubai, Australia, Canada, etc. So the point is, I think right now, if we're shortchanging ourselves, we need to be much smarter about where do we invest. But clearly, um, health is a necessity. There's impact upon the economy because if workers can't get adequate health treatment, they're not productive at the workplace, they're constantly sick. Uh, many workers then won't receive the salary, the family suffers. Uh, workers are dying prematurely. There's an impact on the economy of lost skills. And of course, when the state has to pick up the bill from people get treatment for something that should have been dealt with through primary health care, um, there's a drain on the fiscus too. So right now, on every whatever angle you look at it, things are not working, both public and private. Mm. Louis, when when you characterize the problems in the healthcare se- sector, um, especially for, from from the point of of Afri Forum, what do you identify as being some of the the weaknesses in the system that ultimately are leading to the kind of experiences that that patients have? Because when a patient goes to a health facility, the expectation is to receive a service. And when they are unable to receive that service, then it suggests that something has broken down. But what do we understand? What exactly in the system needs to be fixed? Well, the the main problems that Afri Forum has been highlighting all the time, or let me make two statements about that. The first would be that the state of healthcare in the country cannot be separated from the state of the economy. Uh, so what's happening is uh, what's we uh, are what's actually happening is that there's something wrong with the economy, and then uh, the government is pointing to the system and saying the system has broken when actually the economy has broken. And uh, so giving a new or designing a new system and giving it a new name will not be able to to fix economic growth, which is required for increased healthcare provision. And, and then secondly, uh, which ties onto this, as, uh, is that there's too much focus on the distribution of healthcare and not enough focus on creating more healthcare services or or, or creating the environment where more healthcare services will um, be delivered. And uh, these two uh, are all the time being ignored and simply saying, what if we uh, design a new system or allocate a bit more budget to this end of the system or whatever? And uh, all of this uh, will make only very little, tiny differences, while what is needed is uh, to uh, to state it this way, instead of doctors leaving the country, we need to to create economic growth to such an extent that doctors from other countries would rather say, we would like to go to South Africa where there is money for healthcare, for salaries. And so, yeah, that's in broad terms the, the, the basic problems we're seeing from government side. Prof. Andehieva, just building on on what um, Louis has said, that on the one hand, we not only have young people that are trained, subsidized by taxpayers, but they come back home and don't have jobs. And yet every day we're told about how there isn't enough capacity at our health facilities. We have nurses that are leaving the country, but at the same time, um, we're told that in some provinces, like the Western Cape, workers, uh, you know, nurses are having to cut down on overtime because there isn't budget for them to actually receive payment for working those extra shifts. 
is there a uniform way of 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 characterizing the problems that our health sector is facing or does it need to be looked at per province um what is happening yeah so you do have to look at it per province in some respects and you also Mm. have to look at uh, features of the national system because there's things that the provinces can control and there's things they can't that are being done by national so as i pointed out the um the personnel costs are actually being determined at the national level and uh, in this last year it came through as a shock because if government does increase salaries more than they're allocating for budget national is also allocating the funds to the provinces for provincial health services so there's uh, provinces don't raise their own taxes there's a process of uh, raising taxes nationally and unconditionally and conditionally allocating funds back to the provinces for its major functions that are allocated in terms of the constitution. Now, what happens there is that the two national features of this, which is the budget and the costs of the health service, are actually out of the control of the province. Now, that is something that uh, a sensible government would control. And this results in uh, in mismatches where the, the budgets that are allocated and the costs of the services actually differ uh, uh, are, uh, are, are uh, vary during the financial year. Now, uh, it was pointed out that a sort of a 3.2% real increase was allocated that the province should theoretically have absorbed. That's absolute nonsense. The provinces don't have additional funds. They've allocated the full amount. And and a province like the Western Cape is actually relatively sensible in the way it plans its budgets. It doesn't doesn't approve posts more than what it's got funds for, whereas a lot of the other provinces are actually just um, not managing the the salary uh, and personnel budget very efficiently. They don't actually, they allow for more posts to be approved. Uh, than they actually have funds for. So when the calculation goes out, they're in financial difficulties immediately. So their government basically shouldn't be approving salary increases that they don't fund. That's national's responsibility. At the provincial level, the planning needs to be good. And there's a lot of money being wasted in many provinces. So if you had to look at the Eastern Cape, over a period of about seven years, more than half its non-personnel budget falls into categories like irregular expenditure, uh, accruals, uh, fruitless and wasteful expenditure, and unauthorized expenditure. That means all the discretionary money they have outside of salaries and wages is also being squandered. And in places like the Northern Cape, it goes over 60%. This is an average for seven years. This is a level of unbelievable mismanagement. And uh, provinces like Gauteng, are at about 35%. And all of those are really scary numbers because it means that you can increase budgets in these provinces as well and the money will just disappear. So the, there is a, there's a, that's the provincial level problem. Provincial level problem is about governance. It's about how well the province is actually doing its job. And uh, national can make that job difficult, but a, a well-functioning province can probably still compensate to some degree and also fight back and and pressure. So Alan Windy going back and saying, there's something wrong with what you're doing here is the right thing to do for a province when national government basically stuffs up. And uh, and that needs to be something that is proactive, continuous, because a large part of managing a province is also engaging with national on stuff they do wrong. You have to do that. But at the the provincial level, 
you must take responsibility for what you're doing mm -hmm. and manage it as best as possible. Matthew, why do we see such little accountability um, when it comes to holding the provincial governments accountable? One just has to go back to the Babita Diokoran matter um, because what her assassination resulted in was um, you know, quite a number of exposés that actually unraveled corruption within the health system and in related to particular hospitals. And it is hundreds of millions of rands that these hospitals are getting to provide services. But, you know, we know now that some of that money was used to buy genes and all sorts of other things that should not ordinarily be forming part of a hospital's inventory or, or even, um, you know, a a acquisition under any circumstance. And and when we, we think about just that and replicating it across the country, given what some of the, the other guests have said about how um, widespread this corruption is, why is there such little accountability? Yeah, look, I think it's a good question. And, you know, perhaps it's partly because our democracy, um, those 30 years old are still in its infant stages, if one could say it like that. People tend to assume that, well, you know, the Minister of Finance, uh, he presents a budget and that's it. It's whatever it's contained there will be spent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people tend to focus on national leadership, etc. Provinces also don't have a huge amount of powers. They really have, as Alex was saying, more expenditure capacity. And if you look at them, actually, they have a real significant expenditure capacity. They deal with significant chunks of national departments, so often in a far greater way from health to education, social services, um, public works and transport, uh, housing, etc., I think also part of the quality of people, political parties sent to the provinces, often at times is not the greatest uh, that you would hope for. But I think there has been, you know, efforts by by some to hold provincial and municipal governments to also accountable. Our municipal governments are often far, far worse than what you see in the provincial governments. I mean, I know, for example, like uh, if I look in the Kosatu um, stable, Nahau, Denosa, uh, many other unions would regularly put pressure on the provincial departments of health. Um, would actually go to the issue of a hospital, what are the issues at the hospital itself. So I think there is an evolution. I think people are trying to hold them accountable. Um, but I think you're right. It's something that needs to be done much much more systematically. I also don't think it necessarily at Parliament itself is innocent because at times you can see in the Auditor General's reports a horror show in provincial departments or municipalities across the country. And at times the relevant committees of Parliament don't really hold them sufficiently accountable. The AG has been flagging it. Um, but really, we have to do far better because national governments, to a large extent, is much better off. The, the, the weak links tend to be at a provincial and municipal level. But once you, if you don't do the rot there, by the time it gets national, it'll be very, very difficult to turn to turn things around. But Polisile, why is it so difficult um, for uh, organisations, for for unions like yourselves, to be holding? Uh, provincial governments accountable, especially where we have the kind of wide-scale corruption that, that that we see? No, no, no. Um, we, we don't really think that uh, when it comes to trade, you know, at least in our space, mm. it is difficult for, for us to hold the, the government accountable on corruption. 
but at times, of course, uh, people, uh, it's not just an easy thing that you can just pick up. But indeed, where there have been instances where we have uh, realized that uh, there's some acts of uh, uh, corruption, we have always been vocal uh, on those issues and at times uh, raising it uh, to the necessary uh, entities that will be uh, taking care uh, such things. Mm. At times, and, and why is it hard to pick up uh, what police And I go back to that example I made around Tembisa Hospital and, and, and Babita Diokoran, that when you look at the, the, the level of, of, of corruption that was allegedly taking place, it's difficult to see how monies, um, those big sums of money spent procuring goods that a hospital doesn't even need would go unnoticed by, you know, everybody in a department or even by by the hospital personnel. So, so on the one hand, you know, I want to say, yes, maybe it's going unnoticed. On the other hand, of course, um, I'm thinking people conveniently turn a blind eye. No, 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 definitely. You see, the, the challenge that we have, uh, the level of uh, lawlessness uh, in our country, at times make it difficult for even the same uh, employees who might be involved in issues like uh, your bid committee uh, to quickly expose uh, these eggs because one day when they expose, they get their lives to be in a serious danger. And our difficulty uh, with these things as trade you know, is that uh, uh, the, the labor uh, relations space doesn't uh, really allow, even the PFMA itself doesn't allow a space where trade unions will also be part and parcel of uh, these big processes for purposes of ensuring that there's transparency on issues and so on. So as a result, this information will actually come uh, after uh, the incidents that have taken place, either uh, through uh, people hiding uh, themselves when they try to expose those things because they are fearful uh, of their lives. So the, the issue of exposure of uh, corruption is not uh, really an easy thing if you consider that uh, many people get to be killed for mere effect of exposing corruption. Let me go to our phone lines. Lihe, you're calling us from the East Rand. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for calling in. Um, I think uh, what we need to understand is that um, at a local level, um, healthcare workers are really suffering because even if um, a healthcare member is being, um, a healthcare worker is on incapacity leave, the Department of Health doesn't even send a central person to actually alleviate um, the, the burden at work. And also there's a moratorium in all provinces. And when you look at the outcomes of young women with CA cervix um, in most provinces, they can't really access services. Most regional hospitals don't even have radiologists. They don't even have um, urologists. They don't even have, it's actually sad to look at, we can see a person today and diagnose them and do everything and find out that they they really have um, terrible cancer. But uh, due to the bottlenecks in sending them to, to tertiary care for that service, they might end up losing their lives while waiting. So, um, and also we are training for other countries because where I work right now, most nurses are leaving for Saudi Arabia due to being overworked. Mm. Not because they want better pay, but they are so fed up with the system because nothing ever changes. If somebody dies or somebody goes on retirement, there are just no replacements. 
and and Lise, when when you try and have these issues addressed, what kind of response do you get? So whether it's whether it's within just the hospital where you work, um, what what kind of reception is there to to the issues? Because I imagine management at those at that facility is not blind to the issues. They can see that there's a problem. Basically, they're going to tell you that there's a moratorium from province that they cannot employ our people, you know. So you're going to end up losing more people than the ones you're putting into the system at four care place, but we have a growing population at Christian days. How does all of this make you feel, Lise, as, as a doctor? Uh, basically, you do what you can, but you, you it, it's really, really frustrating because most people... I mean, they do stand a chance of um, of, of uh, surviving their illnesses. But unfortunately, if you send to a regional hospital, they also don't. They do have the CT scan machine, but they don't have a radiologist because mm. there's no money to employ a radiologist. Mm. In most provinces, just to get a urologist, you have to send to a tertiary hospital that accommodates the whole province. Can you mm. imagine? The backlog. And I think, And I think there was also an article that was done um, about another province, I think it was Northwest, that only had one oncologist, and they were sending their patients to Johannesburg. Yeah, sure. You know, Lisa, so we, yeah. we're dealing with endemic problems, and there's absolutely no political will to address them. Mm. Lise, thank yeah. you for calling in and, and for raising those issues with us. She's uh, she's a doctor out in the East Rand. Tulani, good morning. Uh, morning, Katie. It's Tulani, Dasan, Peter. Mm. Uh, uh, the DA in the Western Cape is not perfect, and it is the, it is the first to admit that. But it is in a different league from the other eight provinces governed by the ruling party. When held up to other eight provinces, the Western Cape is a model of good governance, clean audits, and austerity agendas, second to none. Massive progress in health, which is the primary measurement of provincial competence. Uh, this is what we say from the how we must stop these cheap politics while the budget cuts will negatively affect the poorest of the poor, whom he claimed to represent in the house. He must deal with the root causes of this budget cuts, which has been years of AMC corruption. He must also talk, when he, when he meets with, the, with his comrades, he must talk about the increasing VIP, VIP budget of $1.4 billion, which could be which could be placed in improving the healthcare system and also these budget cuts that we are talking about today. And Kepi must also know that the Western Cape is a victim of its own successes because people are taking their parents and grandparents here to the Western Cape on a daily basis to get quality healthcare because of failing the health system in the Eastern Cape and other eight provinces that are led by the ANC crooks. Okay, Kepi, all right. This is a parent call to all South Africans to vote out this corrupt government that is aided by Nehau and the Tibetan Alliance. All right, all right, Tulani, we're going to leave it there. Tulani's out in, in Kailicha. Dumile, good morning. Uh, good morning, Katie and your partner. Yes. I think my point is a simple one. is to say, look, with health, health first is a state of mind. If uh, your state of mind is not proper, there's definitely no way your health is going to be all right. Now, where I'm going with that is that, you know, there was a doctor in the U.S. Uh, called uh, Dr. Sebi. You know, I think he was somehow killed there because he had figured out that if you want to be healthy, your body has to be in an, in, in an alkaline state of balance. 
Now, what, what, what happens is health is an industry. It's a business. We have to admit that. And for an industry to exist, there's got to be problems that it has to solve continuously. So if people are perpetually kept in an unbalanced state of pH in their own systems, most definitely you're going to have more sicknesses. And there's no way, no matter how much money you can throw into the system, all right. But there's no way you're going to be able to accommodate all the illnesses that are going to come unless people just live healthy. Alkaline state of mind is, is, is the proper way. All right. Yes, Dumile, yes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's probably a conversation on the other side of, of what yes, we're talking okay. about today, you right, know, thanks. because uh, that's what, you sh- what should happen, you know, to prevent you from falling ill. But when you are ill and you need access uh, to healthcare facilities, you expect that those um, should be functional. Well, let me then get ready to close off our conversation. So where to from here? What then can we realistically anticipate um, when it comes to the provision of healthcare in our um, in our public healthcare sector, whether it is primary, whether it is secondary healthcare. But for Lisila, I'm going to give you your minute just to give your final reflections. Where to from now, really? Can we expect things to get better? No, thanks, Katie. Uh, Before we, we respond to that, we, we want to indicate that indeed, there's a say that you can't take you can take a horse to the river, but you can't force the horse to drink water. There's an indication that despite us as Nehau affording the likes of Tulani free education, he's refusing to arise to logic. And uh, we are saying it, it can't be cheap politics when we're raising the issue of the failure uh, to provide healthcare services by the Western Cape government. For instance, there's a long-known story about patients sleeping on floor in Kylie Chad District Hospital, but that uh, Western Cape government is claimed to be doing worse, uh, better. EMS uh, workers are subjected to wet bulletproofs uh, for them to be safe, yet we are told that that uh, government is doing uh, quite good. From where we are seated, we think, um, uh, coming to what you are raising, uh, we do think that um, the, the solution to the crisis that we are, we are finding ourselves unto is then a question of the implementation of NHI and ensuring that uh, indeed uh, resources are well allocated uh, to that um, uh, uh, scheme uh, for greater access to healthcare, not only for us in the Western Cape, uh, in town or suburb areas, but for rural communities. And that will assist us to actually ensure that workers uh, and the working class in general is not subjected to the extortion by the private uh, uh, health sector where you have the two-tier healthcare system. So we want uh, more resources to be placed in that regard. All and right. we do believe that uh, with Treasury putting uh, its more resources in that regard, the healthcare system could improve for the development of our people. Thank you. All right. Th- thank you for that. Matthew? Yeah, look, I think first, you know, the key thing is that we're in a crisis, both public and private. Um, public is overstretched, struggling to deliver. The private is unaffordable, yet has, you know, quality, but underutilized. And I think, you know, as a consequence, we're paying the price. People are dying when they should be dying. People are sick when they should be at work. So I think for us, it's about how to pull the two together. Um, it's not going to be an overnight journey. The NHI gives it a common, you know, sound platform to do so. It's been, you know, successfully implemented in many countries from Canada to Sweden, Singapore, etc. Obviously, we have to have our own unique model. But I think first, you know, it's about the president signing the NHI bill. 
And of course, making sure you do put adequate resources there. It will take some time. And I don't think, you know, perhaps one doesn't want to rush, but they have to move with some speed because we shouldn't be allowing people to die for, for no valid reason. All right, Matthew, thanks for that. Louis? Well, aside from getting rid of the ruling party, uh, we would suggest strengthening the private sector where we find less corruption in initiatives such as uh, Unjani clinics and um, uh, many other private initiatives also aimed at low-income communities and uh, strengthening those initiatives and also allowing for uh, low-cost benefit options, which we see uh, government still kicking against this, uh, which can actually help uh, poor people. And then uh, also enacting business-friendly policies, which will increase the tax base and in the end also increase income available for public health care spending. Yes, so that would be in short my, my one-minute answer. All right. Thanks for that. Prof. Van de um, I, I'm actually quite worried about the next few years. Uh, the NHI is unfortunately just a political pipe dream. It's not going to happen, and it can't make any It can't make a significant difference. Uh, it hasn't been th- it hasn't been thought through. Structurally, can't be implemented. Fiscally, can't be implemented. We're left with the failing governance structures that we have in the provinces, which can be corrected. But if we had to use the case of Babita Diokaran as an example that roughly 1.2 billion rands worth of transactions that had been flagged in a Timbisa hospital. It's unlikely that many of the items that were to be purchased and transactions that were approved and paid for actually resulted in something arriving at the hospital. And to date, nobody in the province has, had be, has been held to account. And in relation to the unions, they were also part of objecting to the suspension of the CEO who signed off on those transactions. The corruption goes very deep in these provinces. And what it indicates is that it goes right up to the top. And that's why nothing has happened to follow up on those cases and to close the holes in the, let's say, just using the Gauteng Department of Health as the example. This is going to continue. And it's squandering public resources hand over fist. And it means you can't you can't basically get the system to adjust correctly unless you deal with uh, with the corruption that goes right to the top. Unfortunately, that is the case. NHI can't correct this and uh, and really is an unimplementable piece of nonsense as it stands. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Let me thank all of my guests uh, for coming onto the show and contributing to the conversation. It's just after 11 o'clock. It's time for your latest news.